gotta have gut hope. It's gotta get better. It's gonna get better. You've got this. This is the Gut Hope Podcast. Gotta have gut hope. Gut hope. Hope. Inspiration. And healing. It can happen. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Gut Hope Podcast. Today I'm joined by one of my good friends. His name is Gordon. Gordon and I have worked together for about four and a half years. How are you doing today, Gordon? Oh, very good. I, I've had my run and uh, I've had a little bit to eat and I'm, I'm ready for the evening. Oh, great. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, Gordon and I, back before the pandemic, would spend many of our lunch hours together in the cafeteria. One of the things that is interesting about Gordon, he's very open about his life and it makes it a lot of fun to talk to. He has had some amazing experiences throughout his life and so he's a lot of fun to talk to. But one thing that really caught my attention and why I wanted him to join me on the podcast today was talking about hope and how you deal with that with food addiction. And Gordon, can you just briefly give us an, uh, an, expl- an explanation of what food addiction is and how you got into this and how it ties into having hope? And then we'll, we'll drill into it more as we explore this. Okay, be happy to. As far as how I got into it was there had a wake up with other addictions in our family. Uh, my son had some arrest and some jail experience and certainly contributed to that was was uh, some drug and alcohol problems. Um, but uh, as we got him into a recovery program, and this was almost six years ago, it caused us to look at our family culture and look at ourselves uh, individually and started to see which which a lot of people don't get it is is when I say I have addictive tendencies uh-huh. and addictive tendencies is where I overdo things so I don't want to face the real emotional cause of my dilemma Wow. So that's where I got started. And it really was, um, you know, kind of looking inwardly, and families do this, you know, how much is the family a part of the child's problem? And I, my wife had noticed stuff, but I hadn't um, accepted it yet. And uh, it was just one time after going through um, another uh, addiction program to support our son uh, she uh, caught me uh, eating my off my granddaughter's leftovers. Uh huh. And um, who who lives with us? And she has lived with us since birth. Um, and it was the the issue of how 
casual it was you know i don't have a timer you know whether it's the five second rule or the 10 minute rule <laughs> but i came to realize that um i would i leftovers was something i would watch out for and uh i so knowing i had really crossed the line with somebody else's right to their food you know hey you went to the bathroom you lost your chance mm-hmm. um no that that showed my immaturity and uh caused me to uh look at there's got to be something for uh, food addicts and so i uh started an investigation in fact it was a sharing of somebody in a meeting that had other addictions but was aware of food addiction that, that uh, tipped the attendees off at the meeting uh, about this program. So I uh, investigated it. So that's how I got started. Wow. And that was about six years ago. That's crazy. Really attending another addiction meeting for one of your kids and and a light goes off for yourself. That must that's have su- been an interesting epiphany that happened. Yeah. Uh, that's a, a good summary. Yeah. So I was looking at the foodaddicts.org website prior to this to just try to get some more information about food addiction. And obviously, like many other addictions, identifying and recognizing that there's a problem, which in your case you did, maybe it was your wife pointing it out to you, that's a very important first step. I'm just sort of interested in your perspective. I haven't seen many people go through the program. What leads someone to finally want to make a change and say, I need to do something different than what I've been doing before? It's a hard process mm-hmm. um, because as creatures, we tend to focus on other problems more than our own. And... Um, whether you look at it from the 12-step program or just life in general, um, admitting or even becoming aware that you might have a problem is the the hardest process. Um, We kid about a river in Egypt called denial. (laughs) Um, It's easier to acknowledge that others have a problem uh, or well, we sort of have a similar problem, but boy, I'm not as bad as they are. Uh, so one of the be- best benefits of a FA meeting and the associated fellowship is the reminder and the increasing openness with others that have a similar problem. Because at first you start you start listening it to it, maybe for understanding, maybe for compassion, and then uh, uh, eventually you pick up some clues that are, oh, oh, that sounds a little bit like me. Oh, uh, right. And, and so you're, you're observing before you are joining. And it, 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 it does, like I say, it took, a, it took a while. It took me three months of learning and participating. I'm saying learning. I was, I was going every week. I had a sponsor. But it still took me three months of learning and participate to say affirmatively, I am a food addict. Wow. So it's, it's not an easy problem uh, to recognize. And, and the other thing is, as you're mingling with others, it, it starts to become something that um, the, the whole idea of addiction recovery, not, 
not I'm I've recovered. It's done. It's behind me. Uh-huh. Um helps you to realize that um this isn't something you're going to fix. It's something you're going to learn to live with and and develop a better life. And that's a that's a hard part of the acceptance process and being with others that are are saying I'm a recovering food addict. Uh, well, haven't you gotten it fixed yet? Uh, how, how slow are you? Mm-hmm. No, if if you've got the disease, as we call it, uh, you compensate for it correctly, and uh, and it becomes a life-changing uh, process. And later on, we may talk about diets. Yeah. Diets are not handling. Um, they're they're not handling uh, the addiction. Well, it's so interesting. I think this is a perfect segue into this because I know you're not um, super familiar with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's or what these these gut-related issues, but it really is terrible on a lot of people. And there are many diets out there that are supported by a lot of different people, and it does bring healing or at least relief to a lot of these symptoms that people are suffering from and and as such everyone sort of perseverates on these foods that they're eating and they're like what did i eat what didn't i eat how am i feeling after i ate is it something i ate two days ago i mean you become obsessive about the food everything that you're doing and that's what when I was looking on the food addicts website and I saw these questions that they had there that they're asking and saying hey you might be a food addict if if you answer one of these and I probably answered half of them (laughs) as an affirmative so I'm sure you and I need to have a talk afterwards but (laughs) some of these that I think would relate to many of our listeners where they're probably like no I'm not a food addict I'm I'm wasting away but but it's an interesting thing about the mentality of a if when you're addicted to food and you're thinking about food all the time. So that's the first one is do you constantly think about food or your weight, which is obviously a big concern. Um, yeah. Um, in in FA, which is sort short for food addicts, mm-hmm. meal planning is done ahead of time. So you don't think about food. And what you eat is planned and committed to your sponsor. So as soon as you're getting into, oh, what did I eat? Then you have the weaknesses of being an addict uh, getting in there. Uh, And whether you are an overeater or you have bulimic tendencies, uh, you may find this is surprising. You are directed to only weigh yourself once a month. Wow. And that is a very, very hard thing to do when, uh, I mean, the scale can be a part of the craziness of uh, even to the degree that you're weighing yourself not just daily, but sometimes before and after you eat. So getting the scale out of the picture of how am I doing and putting your confidence in that if I'm doing the right thing, everything will work out. Uh, it takes a while to start to, I mean, like people that go through it their first month, they go, hey, I lost 12 pounds. And I didn't even get on the scale once. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's like 
focusing on your change of behavior is better than focusing on your results. And it turns out in a lot of people's life, um, people out, you know, friends, family, parents that are too results focused is where the uh, some of the emotions that drive people to addiction happens. So you need to eliminate the scorekeeping, uh, mm. the focus on the results, because even though the results might be, oh, I want to lose 10 pounds, I want to lose 10 pounds, there's something weird with food that when you're trying not to eat, you want to eat more. And if you're weighing yourself, uh, it causes you to think more about your problem. And if you think more about your problem, you're used to compensating your problems with eating more. So eliminate the scale. Wow. <laughs> is, is uh, you know, the record keeping is a good thing to do for addicts. That's very interesting. And it's interesting how it applies to these gut-related issues um, like Crohn's or colitis because it's a symptom of what's going on in your body and so the doctor always wants to weigh you knows wants to know how much you've lost you know as a scale of like are you getting better or worse and achieving weight gain is actually an accomplishment in our world mm -hmm. <laughs> where it's like oh I'm so happy to see you put some weight back on because you were wasting away so that's interesting how your perspective is on it but I think what you're saying with the scale is absolutely true because it becomes another thing that you could monitor yourself and, and then you're measuring whether you're succeeding or failing. And uh, that could just be another stressor in your life that's making things harder on you, right? Exactly. And it is the stresses that causes people to, uh, and not accepting stresses, that causes people to have addictive behaviors. Which, which relates to, uh, if you wanted me to talk about uh, diets I've tried, I can move in and, and, and talk about diets that well, work for the next question, I, I picked four of these questions out that I thought really related to Perfect. Um, okay. ulcerative colitis, but the next one is, do you find yourself attempting one diet or food plan after another with no lasting success? And... A big one for ulcerative colitis or Crohn's is the specific carbohydrate diet or SCD. There's this autoimmune protocol, AIP, and these just are like a pyramid. They just get more and more restrictive the higher you go up to where, you know, maybe all you should be doing is drinking bone broth. That's a reality for a lot of people, especially if they're flaring and they're in a, in a tight situation. But everybody's sort of pulling you in different directions over these diets and which ones work for them and don't um, can you talk about diets a little bit and oh oh sure uh, um, I've I've done uh, Weight Watchers and uh, for some people uh, it works and hey my brother lost 65 pounds and I lost 45 pounds with Weight Watchers uh-huh the thing that was odd about Weight Watchers and food-related diets is Weight Watchers um, had a, um, you, you, you counted your points. Yes. And, and so you go to the Weight Watcher meetings, and, and I hope I don't offend anybody, but how, in general, 
how men uh, accept and deal with their problems is sometimes different than uh, women. So going to Weight Watchers uh, to hear all of these ladies talk about uh, their meal preparation and what was a killer for me how they would do all these tricks with seasoning and so forth to make it taste almost just like what you love. So they're talking about the substitute for what you love rather than um, dealing with your problems. And so I, I didn't like that part of it <laughs> because then it caused me to think about the thing that I can't have, but I can have something that almost tastes like it. But what if you really love the real stuff? Uh, <laughs> so, so a diet doesn't solve your addiction, which I say is physical and emotional. And uh, when you get into the issues of, of nature nurture, you've got, uh, uh, you've got a lot of family and cultural issues. And the problem is the thoughts that I'm okay when I reach a goal. The end to addiction uh, is thinking about I'm okay right now and believing it. It's all about self-worth, with or without a deformity, with or without a health problem. It's, it's very, very valuable to move ahead, to know I'm okay right now without change happening. Because change won't happen if you're carrying baggage about you're not okay. Wow. So um, people that have diet success... Uh, or weight loss success. I, I've known lots of people with surgery, like a gastric bypass. Uh -huh. They've all had relapses. And I've, I've seen people that lost over 100 pounds with a gastric bypass, but somehow through eating smaller portions, they were able to gain it all back. Um, people are treating the symptoms, not the cause. And, and admittedly, um, uh, there are a variety of doctors out there and people in the medical profession and anybody that's going down a pro uh, down the lane of getting help for some special problem need to put themselves in the middle of it and look at uh, doctors as a resource um, because you need you know yourself better you need to get in touch with yourself and uh, doctors are trying to do the symptomatic fixes right um, so the cause of all addictions and I told you I would talk about addiction because the similarities are are quite amazing is the lack of emotional stability due to genetics and un unresolved childhood trauma so the 12-step programs are programmed to love and forgive yourself and those who offended or those who offended you that's how you get control over your uh, holistic well-being. Great. Sorry, to, I, I just am looking at these questions, and I'm only on two out of four. <laughs> but I'm going to go to the third one here. Uh, do you frequently feel guilty or ashamed about what you've eaten? And when I saw that, I thought, oh, it's so easy to feel that way if you're dealing with a gut issue to go I shouldn't have ever eaten that donut because now you know I'm going to have all these problems tomorrow and I think there is so much guilt about 
stepping a little bit out of alignment with these super strict diets where there is no leeway like either if you're not doing it you're failing that's the impression i get when i read these books and stuff it's like you got to be a hundred percent or you're failing how do you deal with that how what would you say to somebody that that's that's trying you know it's it's very difficult diet or are we just going to come back to i don't know you you go where you want with this okay um it's it's a balance and it goes back to who is in charge is it the program is it your mentor is it the doctor and if i was to answer that who is in charge is you and only you that's not the correct answer Mm. who is in charge is you and god and that means with God, you can personalize the interpretations of these programs. But God will still call you on your crap too. <laughs> so yes. you, can't, you can't fool God. So there is a learning curve where uh, uh, following new rules for a purpose is a training time. And a lot of people need that and then they get some uh, some progress of following it because somebody else asked them to uh, or somebody else was policing them and uh-huh. they get progress then they start to believe and transition into taking care of yourself so there there's a balance between doing it because you have to and growing into doing it because you want to so mm-hmm. I, I, I i can't i can't speak bad on either side and there's the people that think they can handle everything themselves uh, and they'll fool themselves so so there is a time for learning dis learning discipline before it is self-discipline right well you brought up god when you were talking in relation to this answer and you and i are both believers in god we've talked about that over lunch many times uh, i know with many recovery programs they talk about having a higher power maybe you could just take a minute and talk about how that plays a role in recovery i know it's essential but how does it work in and and it is part of the program well let me talk a little bit and and this is from like i say it's been six years and there was my learning curve and i and i i lost 65 pounds and and i haven't you know, you have ups and downs, but I really haven't gained it back in in uh, in five years. Mm-hmm. And, and what's really really interesting, whether you have uh, 50 pounds to lose, or uh, some people started in the local program here in Tooele the same time I did. One lady lost 160 pounds. Wow! And and she's kept it off. Uh, she's totally a different person inside and outside. And I'll, I'll bring that up again, how important the ins... You, you change the outside as you change the inside, and we fool ourselves. But uh, that's a whole nother story. But uh, anyhow, talking ab- about a higher power, the reason a higher power is used to describe your relationship with God um, is because... 
uh, different people have different interpretations of God. And what is a big part of the shaming that happens is the impersonal nature in which people have used their interpretation of God and their interpretation of religion to uh, browbeat others. Uh-huh. And so how do people turn to their higher power in unless uh, they're optimistic about their higher power helping them? So that's what I say. A recovering addict is a, is addressing with a sponsor, group therapy, and many new behavior practices, their weaknesses, and emotional triggers with the help of their personal higher power. You can't do it alone. You need friends, you need a mentor, and you need the help of a personal higher power. And so if, if we're spending time teaching about the higher power, when what really happens is the person discovering about their higher power, that is where strength comes. Because if you think people are, people are, have so many, when it comes to relationships, it's relationships that have stung them. And it's relationships that they have, they're recovering from. Um, not, it's the, that's the cause is the injury, misunderstandings, and hurt that has come from relationships in their childhood and going and moving ahead. So mm-hmm. relationships can be the most powerful and the most pungent. Uh, so uh, uh, people have to redefine relationships often in the re- in the recovery process, mm-hmm. and even uh, either they define it newly or redefine who is their higher power. Using the word higher power also allows us to mix people together that have different cultural and religious backgrounds. Uh huh. Because then we don't conflict with each other. Right. We're just talking about this spiritual help. Well, that that is all very well said, Gordon, and I know that you speak from experience, having seen many people go through this addiction recovery process and talking about relationships and how they're at the root of so many of the problems that we have. Uh, I just trust your experience with that. Um, Know that you've seen that. The last, by the way, if anybody wants to go look at all the questions that are on the foodaddicts.org website, they could go check that out. Like I said, I just grabbed four of them off of there that I thought would be some interesting talking points for us because it just seems to relate so well with what we're talking about. But the last one, which I really want to spend some time focusing on, is this question. Do you feel hopeless about your relationship with food? And I can guarantee you that many of the people that are listening to this feel hopeless like they're just not going to be able to win and so I'm not trying to say that everyone out there with gut issues is a food act that's not the point of this podcast but I know that many people are suffering with Crohn's or ulcerative colitis they're just these really stringent healthy eaters they're either like really strong vegetarians or carnivores or they're following the AIP diet 
or the SCD diet. That's tough. They're doing it. And then we have a lot of people that feel like I've tried everything. They've done every kind of diet under the sun. But on top of that, they've tried every medication they can find. And they've tried every supplement they can find. And so I understand this, uh, this hopelessness with food, because you're hoping that peace will fix you. I just wonder if you could talk about this feeling of hopelessness and how that was part of your life and, and your experience. Well, I personally, I, uh, I fooled myself mm. uh, for many years. Um, and I say I fooled myself because not only am I a recovering food addict, I'm a recovering workaholic. I am a recovering fitness fanatic. Uh, my coping mechanism with those addictions is because I did not want to face uh, my weaknesses or accept my weaknesses or learn to take care of them more appropriately. So uh, this is a, a standard process that people go through is is to learn about themselves and how do I take care of myself? Um, the, the possibility of a new life. For, first, first there is facing reality. So, uh, so six years ago I started facing reality. I had quote unquote a successful life mm -hmm. and come to find out there's a bunch of baggage that I had uh, that people that know me personally can attest to that I, I wasn't even working on. So when, when you get a, a teaser of reality, um, it's hard to have hope because um, you've been away for a long time. I mean, whatever your condition is. I've been to this doctor. I've tried, the, I, 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 I listened into and have worked with uh, uh, groups in the uh, NAMI group, the National Alliance for Mental Illness. They can tell you how many prescriptions they had, I mean, how many diagnoses they had, and how they switched doctors so many times uh, that uh, you, you start to give up hope. Right. Uh, so the, the, the four A's, as we call it, awareness, acceptance, action, and achievement. The awareness is the hardest. And the acceptance is hard too because then um, it's hard to accept the way things are if you don't have a belief in a higher power because oh, I, can't, I can't go this alone. Mm -hmm. So the, act, the first action part after the acceptance is I'm going to have to let God. And the beautiful thing about, about addiction recovery, it's not professing a program or a specific religion or definition of God. It's again, your, your higher power. So, so having the, just the beginning of the process of believing that, or wanting to believe, maybe, maybe a higher power can help me. Oh, I sure hope, I've tried so many things, I sure hope that this new approach might help me. Mm -hmm. And so it, it's this, the starting of doing it differently 
doing it uh, with a higher power is different and and in reality it changed my life because I thought it was so silly to talk to my higher power about what I'm eating or not eating oh, that's kind of my problem that's not a big problem God only deals with big problems but then when I found out that he was dealing with my emotional well-being um, with or without a disease made me feel like God may help me more than I've ever thought he would help me because if he's willing to help me with these little things uh, maybe he might help me with more things that are related to my you know my big problem that's in my face so that part of FA changed the personalization and the power of God in my life wow I think I've just had a realization here as you're spelling that out but beginning to take action is the genesis of hope like you're not going to get hope from these first two steps right just becoming mm -hmm. aware and accepting it there isn't a whole lot of hope there but the action you're going to take is where the hope comes from is that right yeah you you uh whether it's results or just a more positive feeling mm -hmm. again if we focus too much on results we won't notice the help that we're getting that's great um, as you see people come in to the uh, food addicts or FA group that have lost hope where do you start to try to rebuild them obviously they're at some stage of awareness and acceptance when they come in or else they wouldn't be there right but I don't know how how do you put your arm around somebody and say, hey, you're going to get through this, buddy? Um, one of the uh, the last steps of the 12-step program, uh, the 11th, is that you you share and you help others. Um, and that is very, very reinforcing. When you say how, mm -hmm. it still is how do you help people learn to help themselves with God um, I never thought from the outside looking in that the uh, addiction recovery program was so God-centered but it is um, without having to join uh, organization is is very uh, God-centered um, mm. and so in helping others is first there is building rapport and sometimes building rapport is not not that it's artificial but is sharing your vulnerability eventually and sharing your experience eventually they start sharing how messed up they feel mm -hmm. and when they start feeling messed up for them to realize that hey I feel a little messed up too but I'm happy. And then they, they have that big dilemma. How can you be messed up like I am and you're happy? <laughs> uh, uh, and and then and then it's a little bit of teaching of, of things of things to try. Uh, there is methodology in any program, um, but it is putting out choices uh, so that the person with their higher power decides what's the next thing to do now putting out those choices 
can be uh, uh, some of the tools that they have in FA. Uh, deciding to have quiet time every day. Uh, deciding to uh, write down your thank yous every day. Deciding to have positive thoughts. So, so it's a matter of helping people uh, put add more things to their action list but theirs not not the 10 step uh, I mean the 10 steps or 12 steps are so generalized it still puts the pressure on what to do next and how to do it on the person doing it mm-hmm. with and I believe in people regardless of religions believe in revelation which is which is their higher power helping them decide how to proceed and what to do next. I know the second step in the recovery process caught my attention also. It talks about having a hope for a new life. And uh, obviously that word hope caught my eye because this is the Gut Hope podcast. (laughs) And I wanted to talk to you and see what that second step means to you about what it means to have a hope for a new life and how that plays in a role of recovery a lot of uh, I, I I did work many years ago with uh, with um, uh, behavioral changes in 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 uh, corporate uh, corporate leaders yeah and um, the hard part is um, or the or I, mean, I won't say the hard part well the hard part is disbelief um, but rubbing shoulders with people that you start to believe had it as bad as you had it and them sharing their new outlook on life over time is very effective Um, and so even in your your podcast and you're reaching out if if people that have similar diseases were to join together and and not just to um, not just to tell each other how bad it is but to have somebody in there that's saying I know it's bad um, but I've had some changes in my life that are making me helping me to cope and find a little happiness here and there is is hearing those things whether it's one-on-one with a sponsor or one-on-one with a friend or it's in a group is when those personalized comments come and the person clings to it and says oh I'm gonna remember that and then they remember it and recall it it helps them in their day-to-day process and what they remember we there's all sorts of models and slogans but different things work for different people right and um so i so i i personally just love the serenity prayer i i I cling to that and it's the start of every meeting and and the serenity prayer um is 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 a phrase you know uh, three phrases that helps helps people out that relates to really the first three steps um so it's it's consciously doing things because I want help, I want a better life, and the hardest thing for people to 
do is to have the patience for small steps and small progress. Because mm. as soon as they get impatient, then they, then they become frazzled and they lose it and they have relapses. Yeah. We do try to rush things. Oh, totally. Yeah, get to the finish line as quick as we can. Set a goal. You know, when I my cal protectin levels at this level, if this is at this, then I'm okay. Now I'm better. <laughs> How could I quickly get from A to B? And illness is hard. You know, that's just a compounding issue when you're dealing with illness and and a big part of losing hope is just dealing with illness. I think there's a lot of other factors that come into losing hope that you've seen in the addiction recovery program. What are some of the other things that you've come across? Well, in my life, I've had lots of, uh, lots of ups and downs mm -hmm. and scares. Uh, death of a son uh, at a young age. Uh, divorce, uh, cancer scare, heart attack. There's something about, and this is a personal philosophy, um, there's something about learning to believe that life is about learning and the experience of life and um, the opportunity to give back to others. Um, if you're looking to just fix yourself, change the world, um, and you don't, you're not grateful for the, grateful for the lessons and opportunity that can come from a car accident, a disease, um, then you lose your patience and then you go south and, uh, and that's that's where people that have no hope uh, spiral and end up uh, with uh, suicide attempts. Yeah. Um, a big so, reason I started this whole podcast was just to show gratitude for everything that's happened with my son and his healing and to share that. So I love what you were saying previously about getting together in a group and sharing that and rubbing shoulders with somebody who has gotten better or has found recovery. I think that's so important, but it's it's so hard because there's a lot of toxic people out on the internet that want to bring you down. You know, it's very discouraging. Uh, do you find that uh, holds some of the people back that you're working with too? Yes. Anytime mm -hmm. somebody uh, is trying to make change, because it's hard, Mm-hmm. Anything that uh, that triggers negativity, um, I realize it can't be avoided, but minimizing it is very valuable. Uh, one thing that's you know, when, when you're breaking away, so so to speak, from the social pack that you're in, yeah, um, uh, choosing to do it makes you a stronger better person uh, but you can't do it alone um, to give you a, a, a for instance which which um, 
is the pros and cons of, of connection. There, there, there are social problems that make it harder for us to, whether it's news, whether it's uh, culture, whether it's belief systems, there are social problems that makes it harder to take care of yourself. Um, you know, I implied that sometimes uh, people with certain religious beliefs uh, can uh, they can be helpful or they can be uh, suppressive. Uh, traditions. Can, can you imagine uh, all the traditions that are related to food? Oh, yeah. They can be helpful, but if you got to break away from some of those traditions to learn about yourself, if you've got to be the oddball and you don't have other people to be oddball, because it's like you like, you like the word connection. Yeah. Belonging and connecting is very important when it is by the uh, the mature choice of the individual. You know, where it's coming like, oh, come join us, come do what we do. Um, so there's a lot of traditions associated with food in the family, in the community, in society, and in your native country. Choosing to be different is difficult after yeah. you accept that you're different. Because you just don't want to be different. You want to be fixed. So once you decide you're going to be different, whether it's eat different, dress different, or act different, it's hard unless you, uh, again, associate with people that uh, have have the same uh, ideas as you do. Uh, I, I can't imagine, and I even have interest in finding out about other groups and starting other groups that don't even relate to food addiction. Because change, I believe, you can't do alone. You need a group, you need a mentor, and you need a higher power. Wow. Um, uh, it's just too hard to, to do alone. So at first I had to separate myself. I did my own grocery shopping. I did my uh, own meal preparation and I ate alone at home unless it was with uh, food addict friends. Um, so after a while and I got stronger, then I could uh, prepare my food that I planned and bought and prepared myself. Then I could eat that with my family when they were eating. And then oddly enough, members of my family, my wife, noticed that I was eating plenty of food and um, and it was uh, healthy. So every so often, uh, she would cook a uh, appropriate uh, dinner for the whole family, and I would eat with the whole family. But on top of that, becoming more, it's like you have to separate to become strong on your own. But you throw on top of that, oh my goodness, my first year, talk about... Uh, Holidays were a hell. Oh, jeez. Halloween, being different on Halloween, mm -hmm. Thanksgiving, Christmas, birthday, New Year's, yeah, Easter, <laughs> and barbecues at Fourth of July. <laughs> right. You know, hey, you mean I gotta be different all year long? I gotta be different all my life uh, until I get a handle on what works for me. Um, so it, it just adds a little bit of reality that 
that change and I, I've seen people that they they start to lose their their um, withdrawals believe it or not um, withdrawals may take a month or two where it's more emotional and even seems like physical to not have the sugar fix or the fat fix or the or the uh, pa- uh, flour fix the pastry fix mm-hmm. um, and this is where where we and and no offense to people that have gut problems but uh, sometimes a physical handicap is easier to handle than a unseen physical problem or a unseen mental emotional problem if you see somebody walking down the street with a crutch or cane uh, they, they might not join the family ice skating party yeah but everybody goes hey they've got a reason right but it's when obvious. it comes yeah. it's obvious and when people have a hidden physical emotional or mental reason uh, we, we we are not compassionate as a as a general sense yeah uh, hey you're, you're going to avoid cake and ice cream what you're not a part of the family anymore you <laughs> right. you'd be surprised how those subtle little jabs yeah. hurt when you're trying so hard to change yes it's like you've dishonored the family somehow yeah yeah it can I'm sure people are struggling with that right now. I know I had my son on a gluten-free, dairy-free diet for 13 years of his life. Wow. And nobody understood it. You know, everybody thought we were crazy. And I, I, so that part I can very much relate to. And everybody's pulling out the Oreos or whatever. And, of course, we don't have one, you know. So we got to make a gluten-free dairy-free Oreo so that he gets an alternate substitute, kind of like what you were talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, with Weight Watchers. Right. Well, but but still, it's a substitute helps, right. but it's only on special occasions yeah. that you have to do that. Otherwise, you live your life normal, well, your, your got, personal life normal. In, in my case, you know, it's a 10-year-old kid who can't have the birthday cake that everyone else is eating, you know? So, like, oh, I better make you an equivalent because... You just don't understand why you can't have it, and that's really tough. I I I can just relate and sympathize with anybody who's going through that similar issue. And as you're talking about not eating with your family, boy, that that w- that would be very tough for me. It's such a social part of what holds us together as a family is our meals together. I, so, I roped you may think this is funny <laughs> I, I roped off our our uh, our kitchen and island you know with all the counters and the, the refrigerator and uh-huh. oven and everything uh, it faces into our our living room which is a common you know and you yeah. have the dining room table between there um, to make a statement to me and a statement to my family I roped it off and with these little, uh, these caution flags, you know, and it could be easily removed by whoever wanted to go into the kitchen. Mm-hmm. But um, I needed a visual reminder that I can't go into the kitchen. Is that still in place after six years of doing this? No, oh, no. Okay. No, uh, it was only it was only useful for about six months. I see. Because 
either dad is really weird or he's got <laughs> some other problem. Um, but I told them, this is for you uh, to learn about how serious my problem is as much as it is for me. Wow. And so, and so uh, it became uh, comical uh, that, uh, Dad, you're not, you're not getting close to that rope, are you? Keep away. <laughs> so, oh so I got them to start uh, policing uh, me from raid the pantry or the refrigerator. So uh, it was a, a visual reminder to everybody that um, you got a food addict in the house, and it's for real. Yeah. You have to have some thick skin to deal with kind of all of this and be very, like I said at the beginning when I was introducing you, very open about what you're going through and dealing with to be able to let your family be so aware of your problem. I know in a lot of cases uh, there's so much shame associated with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's where you're just, you feel like you can't even leave the house. You know, you might have an accident or you might need to use a restroom in the first three minutes of getting out of the house. Some people just hunker down in their house. They won't leave. Uh, they won't talk to their family about what's going on. And I think going back to what you were talking about with connection and how that can be good or bad, you could sit in your house and just look at Facebook all day and and dwell on all your issues right that i don't i think that's a bad connection i don't know what do you think on that like how do you keep these positive connections in your life well the connections are extremely important and in some ways if you can have the respect and understanding of friends and family members um, that is more powerful than 10 new friends. Hmm. But the new friends help you hang in there while you improve the relationship with old friends, some valuable ones, and, um, and then family members. My, my wife and I have, have lots of differences. Um, and it's almost amazing how we can go through love, uh, what do we call it, the love languages. Mm -hmm. We have different love languages. Um, we, we have lots of differences. Um, but for me, acceptance of the differences and an ability to live with and remember the differences, it is people and even you know family members and even my wife do not believe I had the disease that I had initially mm -hmm. but to rally people that are close to you to share with them information so that they don't always uh, have to pinch themselves and say uh, oh what are you doing that for Oh, that's right. You're you're an addict. Um, helps out so much because the hardest part about change, without God and with, without friends, 
is loneliness. Mm. And so often, and and every recovery program understands that. So whether or not they're substitute, whether or not your mentor's your best friend yet, or whether or not you like the people at the you know group therapy discussions, uh, it's the best shot you've got to be able to connect with people that have something in common that aren't that understand your situation. Being alone with people is is worse than being alone without people. Hmm. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. You've had a lot of wise statements in there. I really appreciate your perspective. Um, I wonder if you could just take a few minutes now. We've we've kind of alluded to your story throughout this whole podcast, but I wonder if you could encapsulate it and just sort of... I know that telling your story from what you were saying earlier is one of the ways we find hope. It, you know, and, and not just burying it away, but uh, expressing it and sharing it with others builds our hope up. I wonder if you could just take a few minutes. I know it, you've had a long, interesting life, but just maybe you could give the listeners a better idea of what you've gone through in the last six years. Um, well, the last six years is uh, is really identifying well, what went on the first six years of my life. Right. I sh- I should have started there. Yeah. But yeah. So that that's where I'll start, and I'll make it very brief. I'm I'm going to share a condition, and uh, how that condition affected my life, and how uh, addiction recovery uh, helped me to cope without doing it with addictive uh, behavior. Um, I, uh, was, uh, I was a third child. Third child have lots of things in common. I love my older brother and sister, but there were times when they didn't want to put up with the dumb little brother. And so that uh, created not only them, but I have a fourth uh, sibling, which my mom was pregnant with when I was just a child. So I got isolation, abandonment issues from my older brother and sister and from my mom because she was tending, uh, taking care of the new baby. So that is something that's always with me is being left alone. Uh, I'm a baby boomer. So I naturally had, like everybody else had, a authoritative father. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is um, would have his comments and and want uh, conformity faster than I was able to perform, you know, provide. Also, I was dyslexic, and audio processing of people talking in words uh, and translating that into meaning took me a while, but. Uh, um, it wasn't until second or third grade that I had enough of the vocabulary handled in different ways of people expressing themselves to uh, feel like I was uh, fitting in. Mm-hmm. Um, but dyslexia um, is a lifelong process. You compensate for it, and my, my wife has been a dyslexic tutor uh, for about uh, seven years now. 
she doesn't correct me in public anymore. We've had that. <laughs> We've had that agreement. Uh, but uh, the things that happen in your first eight years of life um, and some scary events and trauma that may may happen in my isolation and abandonment. I mean, you think about not that I was totally my parents loved me we had family activities but they're just some things I felt alone um, uh, in first grade and second grade school was uh, shorter so I would come home from school to an uh, empty house mm-hmm. and wow. uh, two things uh, would start my taking care of Gordon food and TV and I'm still a, a big big fan of of uh, visual entertainment and uh, and food but that was a way to say hey I'm all alone take care of myself uh, watch uh, watch sea hunt and make yourself something fancy out out of the refrigerator uh-huh. so I'm talking four years old five years old six years old that started then did this take you a while to unravel all of this? I mean, you're you're talking about it. I know you've shared your story many times, obviously. But how long did it take you to look back at at such a young age and go, "Yeah, this is a root of a lot of the problems I'm having now here decades later." Well, it it uh, not only allowed me to revisit my whole experience of uh, uh, being handicapped in processing language that is why I had a sales career. I, l- I learned how to read people non-verbally and to control the conversation uh, for my benefit. Um, uh, I didn't know I was dyslexic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so it was like learning that. Uh, food, oh my goodness, food. Stealing food, uh, hoarding food, uh, as a child, very, very common. Cause, cause then I didn't have to deal with the kitchen. I could have it under my bed. I could have it in the closet. I could take care of myself. So revisiting stuff, and and I I looked at. I did not understand. I uh, excelled in gymnastics. I did not understand the uh, food addictive tendencies that I had. Uh, even though, um, even though I was uh, performing in high school and, and college, but uh, boy, uh, I watched my weight because uh, lowering down to an iron cross, uh, three pounds could make a difference. Whether the when the judges are counting, you know, one thousand one, one thousand two, to get the credit for the iron cross. Uh-huh. So, so I had times. I mean, the good news is burning, burning, uh, you know, 3,000, 4,000 calories a day because of the strenuous workout meant I could eat a lot. But uh, that set me up later in life when I wasn't burning those calories I was used to eating. But it also set me up because I get on the scale and, uh uh-oh, I got to throw up. And I tell you, what you think you're going to lose in calories by throwing up is so much it's so much less than what you would do by burning it with energy with with the energy mm-hmm. you ju- you just can't compensate by trying to eliminate calories by heaving uh, so that was a 
uh, not a weekly basis, but a frequent basis of my athletic career was uh, watching my weight and uh, compensating by, by by poor activities. Okay, that's all yeah. the way up into your college years, right? Yes, yes. I I love your gymnastic skills, and just so the listeners know, I th- I have this funny story. Is we. I was asking Gordon about this originally when I first met him, and he says, yeah, I, I did gymnastics. And I said, can you still do it? And he just, like, popped down immediately and did a handstand. Do <laughs> you remember doing that? Yeah. Well, the, well, the, wor- the worst thing is, is you know, I love the power of I am statements. I am a food addict. Mm-hmm. But the worst thing that would happen to me is people say, oh, you were a gymnast? Uh-huh. No, I am. Uh, I am. <laughs> you, yeah, yeah, ownership is supposed yeah. to go your whole life. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's get back. You're in your college years. Uh, so going. after college, uh, then then I transferred my addictive uh, tendencies to food and becoming a workaholic. Mm-hmm. And a workaholic was uh, was uh, achieving for satisfaction rather than facing my own personal problems and facing the difficulty of of being a uh, being a young parent and responsibilities related to that and being personal and close and having effective time with my kids and all my kids from my first marriage. Um, have uh, issues related to me being a workaholic, uh, but it, again, th- these uh, these aholic things mm-hmm. is because you don't want to properly process the gift difficulties of life. I I, w- I wish I go ahead. I was just gonna say sometimes we bander these words around like I was a workaholic, and somebody's listening to that and they go, "Oh yeah, he likes to work a lot." But you're saying this at a different level, like, I was addicted to work. I spent all my time doing work. It was a problem because of how much I wanted or needed to be at work. The aholic portion of it Mm -hmm. means you do it so much that your life gets too focused and out of balance. Mm. That's a great so I, definition. So thank, so so thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Uh, be because work is great if it's in balance with other things, and then that drove me into after after having success in various sales careers and getting recognized, then the next step for me was either and or a president of of my own company. So I started to getting into startups. And if you think 60 hours a week is one thing, when you get into uh, startups, you might sometimes have 80-hour weeks. Right. And so after a, a few startups, then uh, then my uh, first wife said, I'm not getting the personal relationships that I wanted. I'm not getting the money I wanted because I'm, I'm betting on my next startup. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... Uh, I don't want you anymore. But I didn't know about, I didn't translate that to 
a disease or addictive behavior or genetics or social upbringing. I didn't have all that learning. I, I, I wish I had a wake-up call when I was in my 30s, not what, in my not in my 50s. What were you telling yourself at the time? I'm just curious. How did you explain that to yourself? The rationale? Yeah, yeah. The rationale is um, I'm made for bigger things. Yeah, you you just don't appreciate what I'm doing <laughs> type of thing. Like, you don't know how oh, you hard mean, I'm working. You mean, yeah. Yeah. That, well, I mean, for, for your wife to say, you're not giving me everything I need, Gordon, and, and you're saying, well... Oh, well, the other thing is, yeah. with with kids and pressure, I have some pictures when I, when I had uh, 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 four kids that uh, uh, I, I wasn't the body that she married. <laughs> so so it's, it's, not, it's the money, it's the relationship, and your body is, is uh, you know, 60 pounds more than the gymnast I married. <laughs> oh, she wasn't happy with that either, huh? No, she wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> that one, I guess you kind of had to look at yourself a little bit, right, and kind of go, yeah, I've let myself go here. A little bit. But uh, people that have uh, have yeah. addictive personalities uh, don't learn sometimes. Mm -hmm. So after a divorce, I got married within a month and had five kids with my second wife. Wow. So uh, this denial issue is can you can fake yourself out for a long time. Not that I didn't have some good behaviors and did good things, but it just wasn't properly balanced through through most of my life until I was willing to say, I've got some serious weaknesses here and such insignificant things. Uh, maybe Maybe I need to face those instead of discarding them. And that's why, for me, uh, going to my higher power was a life-changing opportunity for those problems. Mm -hmm. uh, my higher power had pulled me through lots of other uh, dilemmas in my life, but it wasn't as personal as how I live and think and breathe day to day. I was too much driven to uh, to get. Uh, I call I call myself a dunaholic. Is it done yet? Is it done yet? <laughs> <laughs> Do you now, looking back, recognize God's hand in your son's addiction and how that led to your own healing? Do you correlate the two? Our whole family, we didn't do that at the time, mm -hmm. uh, but our whole family has expressed appreciation for not only the wrong choices he made, but for the right choices he's made wow. that helped us to make more white choices in our lives. Yeah. It changed our family. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. Some hope coming through probably at the time a very very difficult time to see your kid dealing with drug addiction and 
and and and now being able to look back and recognize the good that came out of it it's amazing yeah he he lives uh a couple blocks from us he owns a house and uh and he's got uh, my nephew and my uh, uh my third son from my second marriage uh living with him and uh he has a a good life he he turned things around you're obviously still very close and have a good relationship with him if he's living that close to you yeah last last year we did a uh uh, uh did a uh, uh it was last year on may we we got a a it was called May the May the Fourth be with you. It, it was it was a uh, a ten k race, uh, uh, honoring uh, Star Wars and May the Fourth be with you. Right. And and so we both have a, a medallion, you know, one of these heavy medals that has the Mandalorian on it because we ran it together. That's awesome. I'm yeah. I'm happy to hear that your relationship is strong through all of this. Well. We've we've taken a lot of time here to talk about all of this, and I'm sure we could spend hours talking about each step of the program and stuff. But I hope that our listeners today have gotten something out of this, maybe found some inspiration. Um, where would you direct somebody that wants to know more about this, and you know, is asking these questions themselves? and wondering whether this might be a problem that they're dealing with, what would be the next step for them that we could give them some hope on that? Well, it's, it's uh, amazing that there are addiction programs for everything you can imagine because the 12-step yeah. programs work. Um, so you can uh, look them up and, and whether it's whether and, and that's why using the uh, 12-step program for whatever your weakness is even if it's a genetic weakness or it's from an accident uh, you know biological whatever um, I, I know that these 12-step programs will work um, so you can just uh, uh, search you know 12 steps for and uh, dot 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 fill in the blanks and come up with it but however you get involved in it it all applies to your areas of addiction Mm -hmm. Um, so if food addicts has millions of members and it's worldwide and so the website is foodaddicts.org and very simple once you Mm -hmm. get there you have a choice are you a food addict and then find a meeting so boom boom it's acceptance and connection yeah and in find a meeting um, you'd be surprised that there are uh, meetings uh, all over the US and in various uh, various countries that's great. I think that's uh, hopeful for our, our listeners to know about and be able to get more information. Um, we're just about ready to wrap it up here. I just wanted to open it up. If you had anything else you wanted to share with everybody before I let you go. I, I would say um, 
and I kidded with you before, but seriously, from the gut, and it's terrible that people think about the gut, it's almost like from the heart, they don't don't focus on on the organ or don't focus on your physical gut and in some literature it's it crosses over so whether i'm saying from my heart or from my gut what i'm saying is from a consciousness that is bigger than just my physical self there there is hope and this is communicated to me daily because there are people that I care about and uh, transferring your hope for yourself to hope for others is spiritual or magical whatever words you want to use hope works and uh, and uh, it's uh, I'm glad you're doing what you're doing Steve because it's uh, it's it's the uh, if oxygen's important if blood's important hope is the other ingredient that is just as valuable if you want to grow holistically and you want to have some joy moments of joy in this life i say moments of joy because because life is up and down <laughs> that's all i wanted to end on that's great boy that's beautiful and i think you just answered the question that i always like to ask at the very end of every podcast is do you have gut hope my hope comes from my gut and i'm speaking holistically Gordon, thank you so much for coming on my podcast today. I just love you as a brother, and I appreciate you taking the time to share this with everybody and sharing the hope that you have with all of the listeners. I hope you have a fantastic day, buddy. Okay. I'll enjoy the evening, too. (laughs) (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye, bud. Bye, bud.